Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The District. I'm Matt McDonald, the US Managing Editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined by Siraj Hashmi, who is the co-host of the Habibi Brothers podcast on Rumble. He is also avid soccer fan, which is useful for the, the purpose of today's podcast, which is the Qatar World Cup. Hello, Siraj. Hey, Matt. How you doing, Habibi? Great to see you. So the Qatar World Cup has been underway since this weekend. And I kind of just wanted, I mean, let's just start as simply as possible with the the controversy of the World Cup being in Qatar in the first place. They are, Qatar is a country which has never qualified for the World Cup on the merit of its soccer team and was awarded the right to host at the same time as Russia was awarded their right to host in 2018. In your words, how would you describe the kind of the process by which Qatar got this World Cup and, and the fact that it's there now. If I could boil it down to a single word, Matt, and you probably already know being an avid soccer supporter as well, I would say football because you're, 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 you're a bloke from across the pond. Football is that corruption, simply corruption. I've been following this since it was uh, Qatar was initially awarded the World Cup back in, I want to say, 2014, 2015, shortly after the Brazil World Cup in 2014. And of course, to all soccer supporters who have been following the story, know just how corrupt FIFA is. They took bribes. Sepp Blatter, the president of FIFA at the time, was under uh, what ended up being a criminal probe and had, was forced out of his uh, tenure of being president because of all the payoffs that were happening simply to give Qatar the World Cup in 2022. And the amount of work that these the Qatari government has forced on these low migrant uh, these low income migrant workers basically turned Qatar into basically a modern day slave state. And they would withhold people's passports. There were so many of these migrant workers who died on the job, and the conditions were just absolutely horrible. And it's been an absolute. Uh, it's been on the on the back burner, on the back seat. This entire World Cup, even though it's been only a few days since it started. Yeah. So I. I mean, I think it's the awarding was slightly earlier than that. I think it might have been twelve years ago. But other than that, gem- generally, you kind of hit the nail on the head. A parallel which I'd ask is, you know, the bribes have been kind of. The Department of Justice has basically said, like, we have got evidence that, you know, bribes were bribes, bribes were handed out to affect the outcome of the vote which awarded them this tournament and actually awarded Russia the last tournament. In many, like, if there was, say, an election, right, or any other type of decision which has been made where, you know, justice officials come out and say there's evidence this has been affected, you know, the outcome of this has been affected by bribery, usually you would then say, 
oh, we're going to change the system by which we we, we select our, we, we're going to change our selection process. And yet, you know, the, I think 12 years ago is, is when the two bids were awarded. The first evidence, or like the first, you know, everyone thought at the time it was suspicious. The first evidence that there were bribes maybe came two years after that, which was still, you know, 10 years ago. And yet, that at no point during that process, obviously, the, there were huge probes within FIFA and a number of the top officials you know, have been forced from their positions or resigned or sanctioned or whatever. But the World Cup's still there now. And I'm, you know, I think the competing bids when Qatar bid for it were from the United States, South Korea, Japan and Australia, four countries which have already got stadiums and the infrastructure in place and therefore the money they would the money that they would be spending would be to update their existing infrastructure. Qatar, I don't think, had any stadiums which were suitable. There was one which I believe I heard in the commentary. It's literally built out of shipping containers and is getting dismantled as soon as the tournament's over. So, I, I mean, it's it, is it just a, a damning indictment of, of solely FIFA or is it like a, a wider statement of kind of the state of kind of in the international politics that no one really had the power to step in and stop this once the bribes were kind of revealed. You know, that's such a great and loaded question because, I mean, you and I know, I mean, it's as plain as anyone who has, you know, two working brain cells, how much corruption was involved in the selection process of Qatar beating the United States in the fourth round by 14 to eight votes. So you know that there's something amiss here. When the U.S. has stadiums in almost every, you know, at least one stadium in every major city in which they can host a World Cup's size event. So the fact that Qatar, which had virtually no infrastructure, beat the United States, you know something's amiss here. And FIFA sticking with their guns after all of these allegations, corruption and bribery came out, stuck to Qatar as being the host nation shows you just how indemnified they are to the Qatari government and possibly the Middle East. I don't know if this is something, you know, Saudi Arabia has a role to play in all of this, given that they basically control half of the world's oil reserves. And I'm sure that impacts uh, a lot of the countries that FIFA, you know, tends to tap into in terms of, you know, having as an ally. It's one of those things where, like, if you were to make the argument that these like FIFA is like the perfect example of why gov- we should never have a one world government. <laughs> there should never be a one world government because you could see how much influence that FIFA has. And there's simply no way of fighting against it. And I have to say this. I mean, like, yeah, you know that the, you know, the merits on Qatar's football team, national team just did not make sense. They're the first host nation to lose their opening match while in the World Cup. That's not that's something that's never happened before. So you it just like it's a constant reminder that this whole thing is a sham. And actually I have not watched a single minute of the World Cup simply out of principle of just how awful everything is is going. I say that as a pretty avid u.s men's national team fan yeah i mean you didn't miss much with the u.s men's game against wales i'll say that the irony is that i think also this this particular world cup of the 32 teams there are more muslim majority countries in it than uh, most of the previous tournaments and with the exception of qatar most of the other 
Muslim majority countries teams have performed quite well. You had obviously there was a shock defeat where Saudi Arabia came back to beat Argentina. Morocco got an impressive tie with Croatia. Tunisia did the same with Denmark. Do you think that you know that's um there's a motivating factor there that you know it's you know well obviously these are not all Arab countries, but the fact that it's playing out in the in the Arab world, do you think that that maybe serving as a, a more of a motivation? I say it's less about playing in the Arab world as it has to do with travel and time difference. So you can make the case that probably Tunisia and Morocco are sort of exceptions to the rule. But Saudi Arabia, they had to do virtually zero travel. They just had to hop on like maybe a quick 30-minute flight to get to Qatar. And beating Argentina, probably adjusting to like a six, uh, maybe eight hour time or nine, even nine hour time difference kind of shows you that it it's best to place your bets on teams that are closer to the time zone in which Qatar resides because, and I've seen, there's, there've been actual studies on this just in the United States with respect to actual like American football teams, you know, playing games on the East coast versus the West coast. And if you were to, based on your circadian rhythm, that are say you should always place your money on the West Coast team if they're playing at home or if they're playing on the East Coast because they're just at a massive advantage because their energy level is going to be just that much higher than, say, an East Coast team. It's very strange, but that's I would I would attribute I would attribute to it to that more than anything as opposed to playing in an actual Muslim country. Huh. Okay. Another, you know, issue that's really come to the the fore with this tournament in particular is gay rights and Western, particularly like Western and European teams, you know, option and rights to express solidarity with, you know, the LGBTQ plus community in a state which, you know, Qatar, I think, in the lead up to the tournament was said, like, we are a conservative country, right? That's the way they, which is an interesting... (laughs) I think westernized ways to do it, but that's, so they're like we're not we're not looking for public displays of affection, but actually, you know, the, if you're a man who commits an, the act an act of homosexuality, you can be thrown in jail for up to three years. Um, there's been the controversy. Um, first, it was you know the Western media were demanding of the of these teams. Uh, what are you going to do to kind of show solidarity and stand up for like the values of your of your country, which are pro gay rights? Then they came up with this fairly innocuous and arm, armband, which was widely criticised. I think eight of the teams were going to wear it uh, uh, that qualified. And then FIFA turned around last weekend and said there'll be you know sanctions on you if you wear the if you wear the armband. For the foot, the football associations for those countries were prepared to you know pay a fine. And then on Sunday, I think or late late Saturday night, they said, well, no, it'll be a yellow card for the captain who wears it. Since then. You know, the I think England and Wales were two of the countries which were going to be wearing it. They chose not to because they felt forced out of it. Germany have just played and they posed. I don't know if you saw this, but they posed for a team photo where they're not wearing the armband, but in their team photo, they've all got their their hands over their their mouth. What do you um? Do you think that it's naive on behalf uh, on behalf of like the the Westerners to basically go over there? And, and express, you know, what they consider to be, you know, the cultural values of their country, or is it, is it a case that you know Qatar, like, should Qatar be, you know, trying to adhere to global standards, or at least for this, you know, month long period? 
as critical as I've been of Qatar, I mean, this is like soft imperialism. It's that soft colonialism of imposing your ideas on a on another country, basically unsolicited. And so FIFA and the teams that have been trying to protest specifically on this issue basically are getting what they deserve in terms of the backlash from the Qatari government. They willingly went along with it to give Qatar the, the World Cup. They didn't speak up when they had the chance to do so. And when they had the opportunity, when there was an opportunity to reevaluate, even after all the allegations of bribery and corruption, to reevaluate whether Qatar should host the 2022 World Cup, it was dead silent. They basically just didn't do anything. No, the needle was never moved. However, the only team that deserves to protest, and actually I would stand by because their lives are actually at risk and by their own government is the Iran national team by simply not singing their national anthem, having their fans boo the national anthem. That is such a subtle and and almost like cutting protest of the Iranian regime. They have uh, spoken out against uh, or spoken out against the Iranian regime this following the match, their match against England, which they lost six to two. But it's one of those things where like, well, my my respect for these players just went up immensely, um, and they're not doing something where it's like orange man bad, like right. I'm under threat of like tyranny. Like they are actually under threat of you know having the, of being thrown in prison or being killed simply for their political dissidents, and that's actual bravery. And I feel yeah. like a lot of people who are you know so terminally online just never fully understand what it means to go up against a, a government that that's that 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 that's ruthless and, and brutal and uh it's it's encouraging to see but you know back to the lgbtq plus protests that were that they were trying to stage i mean look it, it's almost laughable to think that you know westerners are going to come in to Qatar and just say you know we run the show and then basically the Qatari government just slapping them down, saying, "No, you don't get out of here." It's 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 just, and the same it's with the beer wild, as well. Wild to see, and same with the beer. I mean, that is just such a you know. This is one of the things where I'm like, they do not. They, did they have? Did they have no idea what was going to happen? Because they could have literally just googled it and found it in five seconds. That they're not going to make exceptions for a World Cup. And no matter how big the event, they're going to stick to their laws. It's not like they're going to break their rule of laws simply to, for a multi-billion dollar event. It's laughable. I think it's, 200, I think it's 220 billion they've spent. And is it, do you think it's kind of just an extension of that mindset of like, if you're, you know, an, a Qatari oil magnate and you want a, you know, $5 million apartment in New York, you're like, okay, I bought it. That's mine now. I can do what I want in there. And, you know, you want a yacht in Miami, you're like, oh, cool, yeah, here's, here's 100 million. It's like, entitlement. Oh. And now this is just a World Cup. It's the latest thing where they're just like, well, we paid for it. So this is, this is ours right. now, right? Yeah, no, it's a, the entitlement mentality. And it's one of those things where, and the fact that they feel so emboldened to sort of have their way, kind of seeing them slap down like the way they have been, it's I wouldn't say it's like satisfying or gratifying to watch because it's not like I'm not I'm not a fan of the Qatari government, but FIFA, it, they just you know that term FAFO 
I'll say it for in case this is a family show. They they they, they, they mess around and find out. <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah. finding out right now. Got it. I want to pick up on something you were saying about the Iranians because I I agree with you that you know their choice to not sing the anthem in in their game and the kind of. I, I suppose like what they've been trying to express for the protests back home is kind of muted solidarity. And obviously they're walking a thin line because they're there representing their country, but also like there's, you know, still these horrible protests being uh, against the Iranian government and rightly theocracy there, which they'll be thinking about all the time. Do you think that there are lessons to be learned for Western sportsmen, like be that, you know, uh, Americans, Brits, Canadians, whatever, in their protests in terms of like, or is, is, is this just, is that just like a crystallizing example of like, oh, wait, you know, I think the, the other examples that you, you get in terms of like expressions of political, you know, correct and permitted political opinions, you'd have like what slogans you're allowed to have on the back of your shirt, right? Or on the, uh, isn't it on your shoulder pads in the NFL, you're allowed to have like a certain yeah. message. Yeah, the back of your, back of your uh, helmet. Yeah. But with, I think with the, to pivot to American sports, obviously with the NFL and the NBA in the aftermath of, you know, the George Floyd riots and the Black Lives Matter movement, there was very much, you know, permitted, like free, they were like, we stand up for your expression, your political opinions within these confines, which, which we've set. And obviously you get the contrast in basketball or with people like Enos Cantor Freedom, who, when they want to speak out about Tibet or the Uyghurs or, or whatnot, well, you know, that's when free speech comes into clash with your market interests. So what, what, yeah. what do you think? What do you think the, you know, American sportsmen, let's say in particular, can can learn from can learn from the Iranians and, and their example? Is it just that they're pro- like, is it a perspective thing or? Oh, I, I mean, I hope that they get some perspective from it because corporate wokeness, as you know, has sort of been it has been in your face. It's overbearing and overwhelming and they do it in a way that basically make you feel like you're the one responsible for why things are wrong in the world simply by not agreeing with say their political position or their social position and fifa is the latest corporate entity to feel the brunt of it and i just hope that people realize that anytime you do try to insert politics into a place where politics is typically not a the sole purpose or it's not the purpose of the its existence uh, you're going to get polarized responses people in support people opposed to it and that's going to hurt the bottom line and corporate entities at least post george floyd thought it was in their interest to build a, their political capital and risk losing tons of their fan bases and it's just such interesting timing because, say, for example, you can make the, the argument that with Twitter and Elon Musk's purchasing of the platform, you had uh, people and you know, big, big uh, personalities, public figures, and even news organizations, quote unquote, pausing their use of the platform over this idea that, Trump, that uh, Elon Musk is going to let Trump back on the Twitter, reinstating his account, which he did. But when it comes to things like something as heavy as like sexual abuse materials on the website, they said nothing. So it's like, it, it, it's one of those things where like tying everything back to the world cup. And you ask the question, who has the right to, to protest? 
everyone has the right to protest, but if you're going to get into that that territory, you're going to have to be ready to stand firm on your positions amidst the criticism. Because, look, if you're if if you find that now's the time to speak out, but you didn't have you didn't speak out previously, things that when you had the opportunity and it didn't it, it, and you didn't, you should be held accountable for that. And I'm not saying that everybody has to speak out all the time, all at once, but at least recognize that, like, hey. It's okay to it's okay to say, hey, I, maybe I, I was ignorant to this issue in the past, and I didn't speak out on it simply because I didn't know that much about it. But now that I do, like I feel it's important now to speak out. That's a perfectly acceptable response. That's something where people, you know, like I'm not expecting everyone to be perfect, but at least recognize like where your faults are. That's perfectly okay. And there are just too many arrogant athletes and and professionals out there who simply believe that they've been right this entire time or they've been on the right side of history when that's just simply not the case. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of kind of what well, in hindsight the tournament was, you know, X. But it's also, I think you're also right to say, you know, it's so bizarre to think of like, obviously soccer players playing for your national team is like an ambassador for you and your country or whatever. But then also I'm not expecting Jack Grealish to like have like a really erudite opinion on, on the sexual politics. Also particularly in football because... You know, in uh, football, soccer, whatever, particularly in Britain and and in the West, like we have, you know, it's widely supported. It's an immensely popular sport, but it's it's not that good on gay rights as far as players being able to come out of the closet in the dressing room if they were gay. The last time that happened in the Premier League was 30 years ago with Justin Fashionu. He eventually, you know, was unhappy enough that he later killed himself after retiring. And it's like our track records, My God. our track record can improve on this also. And maybe if it, if it was more than just set, like, uh, and we, we do a lot of sloganeering in, 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 in the corporate world and, and in yeah. sport, but you don't see as much of it in practice. Like, you know, the women's game is much better at that, you know, and uh, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. The assumption in women's sports is that you're you're gay or lesbian until you're you're proven to be straight. Like that's the, like in the WNBA and women's soccer. Like there's just no for some of them they like it. It's for a lot of just the way that our standards are in society. You know, this idea of a woman playing sports is considered very tomboyish. And so tomboyish is considered to be like the initial stage of going, you know, to, to coming out to then maybe becoming either a lesbian, bisexual, or even transgender. And it's one of those things where for men, it's always been considered like if you're in this sport, the mask, you know, the masculinity being uh, in, in a sport or playing a sport you know the camaraderie the, the 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 teamwork leadership all the skill all the the qualities that make a, a good sportsman those are like those are virtues and qualities that are virtuous in society of our standards of men whereas for women it's always considered to be the complete opposite of what a, being a sportswoman is and by the way what is a woman yeah. anyways right <laughs> I'm, I'm not a, i'm not a biologist so i can't I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I do think that you know that that also would have been a good litmus test is to say if Qatar wanted to host the men's World Cup, they should have had to host the women's one first to set to show that they could do it. But then, oh yeah, that that that's a good idea too. I, that would have been that yeah. would have been wild. Not to not oh, to do... every woman every woman uh, on the pitch had to wear a hijab in burqa. Yeah. <laughs> it might actually improve the goalkeeping potentially, but uh, <laughs> one well, so two two final questions just to round off because we talked a lot about. The, the politics of the sport and I want to briefly touch on the sport 
we're speaking just ahead of Thanksgiving, Black Friday, England play the US. I want to know what your prediction, your score prediction is for that game. And I want you to give me your best, I know you've not been watching, but your best guess having seen the scores on uh, on who you think is going to win the, the whole tournament. Okay. If I'm going to be realistic, I don't think the US comes away with a, a dub against England. I think it's either going to be England victory or a draw like they had in 2010. If that's the case, I'd say I'd say that if there were a draw, it'd be two two. I think there'd be be some scoring in that. Who I think is going to win the entire tournament? You know, I've always had my sights at least on Belgium for the last like eight years as being like an absolute like beast of a team. I would put my money on them probably first, and then I might put it on. Oh God, I guess I have to. As a backup, probably France because you know the the reigning World Cup champs, and I think the only player that they're missing from the last run is Paul Pogba and and, ben, and Benzema. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. right, and Benzema, who by the way, who by the way is Muslim. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Well, I was going to point out as well, Be- Belgium right, lost their pre-tournament friendly to Egypt, another Muslim country. <laughs> Another Muslim country, so anything's possible. You know, I I hate making I hate making predictions on who's going to win it all because it's just the 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 process is so it's so difficult. And you know, any given day uh, you'll have an upset, just like you did with Saudi Arabia beating Argentina or Japan beating Belgium. That can happen in the knockout rounds. I actually, you know, who I actually like as a dark horse, Canada, Canada. Frank LaBeouf yeah. was saying this on ESPN as well. He he tips them to go to the semifinals. Canada's got some skill. I mean, they won their they won the qualifying rounds in Concacaf, and yes, they're in the tough group with Croatia, Morocco, and Belgium. But I think of Group F, that might be the best group so far. That's the group of death, in my view. So my pre-tournament predictions were that I thought the U.S. would beat England by two clear by two clear goals, and I thought that Argentina would win the whole thing. And I now feel less certain about both of those purely because on, on the US side because of team selection. Uh, like in that, that game against Wales, Bahalta didn't put Gio Reyna on, who is arguably the most informed US player. And he didn't start Brendan Harrison, who's arguably the second most informed US player. And it's one of those things where, you know, contrast that with what Southgate did with England. He st- you know, he's like, well, you know, Jude Bellingham may not have as big as much tournament experience, but he's the most informed player. They started him, he scored the first goal and was arguably the match. For me, he was the man of the match. So I don't know. I mean, my dark horse is Japan, and I feel pretty vindicated that they've just come back to beat Germany. And then it's probably going to be Brazil now. And I'm just going to say that in the hope that I'm cursed. Yeah, everyone, team. everyone, everyone likes to, everyone likes to pick Brazil as like their favorite just because it's Brazil. But you know, they what they haven't won since 2002. That's 20 years. Maybe yeah, maybe they're due for another another victory in the World Cup. They they also they also they espouse our values also. Because uh, just incredibly <laughs> not Bol- not Bolsonarismo, but I just meant just like the fact that like their attitude to soccer is like, well, here is a woman we call Miss Bum Bum who wears a bikini all the time, and and she's in favor of us. So I, you know, we- women have women have access to our game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually uh, you know fascinating. But uh, like, if the United States didn't have so many sports, professional sports, we would be so much better on the international stage in soccer because. Every other country puts pretty much all of their stock into soccer. And the U.S. is like the only country where our best athletes don't go into soccer. It's basketball, football, hockey, and, and well, if you want to call baseball an athletic sport, I guess baseball. 
Well, with the exception of obviously, you know, in the I'm gonna I'm gonna be the uh, the kind of progressive icon who brings up the women's game and the US's success in that. But obviously, that's entirely ha- that's hanging off how much money goes into American colleges and therefore the college scholarship. Like it's part of just like your Olympic dominance is like, oh, okay, well, gymnastics, like here's loads of money to basically go and be good at that. There are schools who then become amazing at gymnastics, like Florida or LSU, and then you dominate the Olympics. And that's that's what happened. And like, so the women, that's been the competitive edge in the women's game for ages. The men's, yeah, I think you're right though, on the men's, on the men's side, they're just, it, there's not the same focus. Like, and, and obviously I think it's growing. I think the audience for the, you know, the Premier League in England's main league is now bigger in the US than it is in the UK as far as how many viewers watch it on an average Saturday. Oh yeah, no, the, I think in the last 20 years, the popularity of soccer has skyrocketed. I think that's a great thing for the United States and, and for the world, but also, uh, you know, it really does, money really does rule in this game because, or in sports in general, because typically, and I'm not saying that all this is, this is the coming upon every single athlete, but a lot of times some some kids who are growing up, their parents kind of push them in one direction or the other based on like how much money they can make professionally. And so with MLS getting better and better and expanding, it's nowhere near the prem, nowhere near any, even the lowest tier European league. It's getting better. And I, you know, you get, I guess you got to say like, it's, it's never, it was never going to happen overnight. You, you have to organically build it up. And the fact that you have like in places like the Pacific Northwest where, you know, soccer fans are absolute diehards out there, you know, that is like, that's actually like a very, you know, encouraging thing. I mean, I never thought I would go to a place, uh, you know, like Seattle, Portland, they're diehard. I never thought I would go. Atlanta's like that too. Atlanta's like that. And even Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, which I never thought I would see, but somehow it's there. It's a it's a weird it's a very strange like uh, dynamic but you know I, I kind of like I like seeing sort of like that rough and rugged you know chip on their shoulder and I'm hoping that that would improve the overall quality of players that come out of the United States and and I mean you're seeing more and more Americans playing the prem and that's a big big deal it's good that obviously the the final stage in the in the US's soccer development is going to be when the MLS learns how to defend uh, Siraj. <laughs> Siraj, thank you so much, not just for your time, but also for your betting tips. Uh, I'm sure that our listeners will be delighted on how much money they're about to make. <laughs> or lose, or lose. Hey, just put all your money in FTX. Can't go wrong. <laughs> Siraj Hashmi, thank you very much. And uh, we'll check in next time. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.